Cornell Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Tom Nichols, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College, author of the new book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy, frequent cable news guest, and I think he describes himself in his Twitter bio as a curmudgeon or resident curmudgeon or something along those lines. Tom has an interesting perspective about what ails American democracy right now, and he draws from his personal experience in framing this new book, which is a a departure from some of his previous work, The Death of Expertise and others. And I know in particular, we've all been talking about one story that he uses about his father and the 2012 election between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Yeah, I mean... So two curmudgeons talking about the book from another curmudgeon, it's, you know, it's it's likely to be a little bit over the top, but there we are. Anyway, yeah, so in the book, it's like, it's right in the introduction, he mentions his dad is not long for this world, and he is a conservative, his dad is. Actually, I think at that point, Tom Nichols was as well. And he says, you know, dad, I think Obama's going to pull out this election. And dad said, well, they're both fine men. We'll be fine either way. They're both good men. We'll be fine either way. And he he notes just how far away we are from that. And it reminds me of this quote from Reinhold Niebuhr, where he says, politicians act as if the future of the nation depends on the outcome of an election, but they also have a reserve conviction that that's not true. And I think now it is true. I think both people on both sides, both tribes, believe that the future of the nation does hinge on the outcome of the election. And, uh, you know, I think so. And I think uh, Nichols thinks that. And it just makes for a very, very different society. And Nichols starts the books by wondering if we will ever return to that notion of we'll be fine either way. I mean... He's discovered negative partisanship. Just to be clear that everybody, you know, that our listeners know, I mean, that's what negative partisanship is. It's where you tend to see the other side as enemies and tend to be very tribal. And I mean, it's a phenomenon that's been discussed in American politics for a number of years now. I don't remember when, I think it was Abramowitz first came up with that term of negative partisanship or affective partisanship. But I mean, there's nothing knew about saying that Americans have strong negative feelings towards those on the other side. There is nothing new about it. But what is new is the idea that there is no longer any reserve conviction. There's no longer any sense that, you know, we say we don't like them and we may not like them, but we don't see the future well-being of the Republic as being at stake, genuinely, existentially at stake in the future of the election. I think what's new about Nichols' argument is not that he, you know, not that he's identified and is concerned about negative partisanship, but this notion that he has that the people themselves are to blame for the situation in which we find ourselves. We we, the collective we is to blame, right? Yeah, it's a sort of generalization that I have a hard time with. I'm not, I'm not sure who he's referring to. Is he referring to all of us? Is he referring to you? Is he referring to me? 
Is he referring to people that protest in the streets? Is he referring to people that vote for Donald Trump? Who, who is it all of us? Right. Yeah, I mean, he says that that's what this is. It's it's a um, we have outsourced the responsibilities of being, you know, the one remaining superpower. Right. It's a volunteer army. We have no responsibility for that. And for the vast majority of us, we have lived in a period of, uh, you know, peace. Right. There have been no demands made on us. And the economy (laughs) has increased to the point where we all are doing well. I mean, in terms of I mean, the vast majority of us, we rely on institutions, we rely on guardrails, we rely on constitutions to protect democracy. Putting it in the hands of the people themselves feels like an awfully risky enterprise to me. And I understand that the framers talked about it and they said, you know, people are going to have to be virtuous in order to do this. But remember that when they were doing this, they were restricting politics to a very, very, very small percentage of people who they thought were going to be worth. And what I sometimes feel like he's missing in this book is that, you know, a large, diverse country is a is very difficult to manage in a democracy. Right? I mean, we are now living in a country where people that never were politically empowered now are, mm-hmm. right? So back in the good old days, women weren't empowered and African-Americans weren't empowered and even young people weren't empowered. And now they all are right. in a complete, increasingly diverse country. And yeah, it's messy and ugly. And it is... It is high praise for a book when you and I go back and forth arguing in the notes, right? So, I mean, right? And so in (laughs) that regard, at least, it speaks to the quality of this book. It's hard to read it and not have reactions and not have, you know, both shock of recognition and also, wait a minute, is that true? You know, so in that sense alone, it's a really good book. And I also want to say that Jenna's interview is really good at laying out some of these these issues and themes. And I think we would be be serving our um, our listeners if we, you know, let her lay those out before we we go any farther. So Jenna, why don't we? uh... Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, Tom and I cover a lot of ground here, and I'm excited for everybody to hear the interview. So let's get to it. Tom Nichols, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So uh, guests, or again, our listeners, I'm sure know you or, or will uh, recognize your name because we talk about your book, The Death of Expertise, all the time on this show. And, you know, really excited to talk with you about your new book, Our Own Worst Enemy. And, you know, as I was reading this, it seemed to me to be in some ways uh, perhaps a more personal book than the, the Death of Expertise was. You talk a lot about your family and, and growing up in Massachusetts and some of those types of things. And I thought maybe we could start there. Could you you know tell us a little bit about your background and how it informs the arguments or the thesis that you're making in this book? Sure. Um, it is a more personal book, and that was a choice. Uh, I was actually encouraged in that by a few of my friends and some colleagues who were reading some early drafts, uh, because I think if you're going to turn to your fellow citizens and say, look, you know, the problem with democracy here is that, you know, you, me, we are, uh, you know, 
have become unvirtuous people and, and bad citizens, then you really need to say something about yourself. And you really need to give people some insight into who you are that you know, you're being that presumptuous to, to raise these issues. And I think it was really important to let people know that I did not come from, you know, as people often think professors do or writers do, I didn't come from a privileged family. I grew up in a factory town. And since a lot of what seems to be plaguing us now is this argument about forgotten towns and you know, the the emptying out of the industrial base, I thought it was really important to communicate to people that I came from a place like that. I mean, I grew up literally looking out my window in an abandoned smokestack for all of my childhood. You know, my brother owned a bar on the mostly abandoned railroad tracks next to a mostly empty factory you know, I, that's just the kind of town I grew up in. My parents were Depression-era kids. My Neither of them were graduated from high school. My mom had a ninth-grade education. They, they were both very intelligent people. They read a lot, but they had, no, they had no formal education. And so, you know, when people would say, <clears throat> when I would talk about this, even when I was talking about the death of expertise, and I would talk about, you know, the need to think about establish knowledge and respect expertise, people would say, well, you don't understand. You don't come from that kind of place. Well, I, I do understand and I do come from that kind of place. Sure. Yeah. And I know you talk a lot about the media as well and maybe how that has influenced some of those perceptions. Maybe we can come back to that here in a bit. But you used uh, the phrase civic introspection, which I, I had never heard before, but I think is really key here and, and gets to some of the things you were just talking about regarding virtues and, you know, the standards to which we all have to hold ourselves. Can you tell us more about what that term means and how it fits in this broader context of what we think about when we mean liberal democracy? Well, I, I can't say I really coined a phrase as much as I just suggested something that would be a good exercise for any citizen of a democracy, which is to ask yourself, not just, you know, am I a good person? Nobody really wants to sit and say, am I a good person? That's a conversation you have with your mirror or your priest or, you know, your best friend. Um, <clears throat> but at the very least, I think we need to ask ourselves more often, am I being a good citizen? Am I being, you know, is what I'm doing a part of a healthy democracy? And we, I don't think we do that because we just assume it. And that's because, and I, I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but um, that's because we've become a culture, not just in the United States, but in a lot of advanced democracies that has become just riddled with narcissism. We never look at ourselves except to think about how we are not getting what is our due, to think about how our sense of entitlement isn't being satisfied, um, to think about how other people aren't you know, properly respecting us. And I think, you know, this notion of civic introspection is really important because you have to ask yourself, you know, am I voting for something or am I voting just to stick it to somebody else, um, which has become a feature of negative partisanship for you, not just in the last few elections, but for, for some years now. So what is, I mean, when we think about, you know, introspection, it's sort of a very like individually focused thing, but we also have this narcissism problem, which you've identified. So how do you, without turning this into some like psychology podcast discussion, you know, how do you sort of get to the introspection without the, the narcissism 
getting in the way or, you know, what role might other people be able to, to do as their room for like group introspection or, you know, some way to sort of tamp down that sense of, of narcissism that, you know, you were just saying is, is so detrimental. You know, when I first started writing the book, a colleague said, I hope there's more to this than just moral hectoring, <laughs> which I always think of as my, you know, core skill set. And there are, I mean, there are projects I suggest at the end of the book and some uh, recommendations for change. But I do think that in a democracy, the way we establish the moral and political guardrails is with a certain amount of tough love with each other. You know, I think it's important. It's kind of, again, linking back to a theme in The Death of Expertise when I said how much I hate the phrase, let's just agree to disagree. You know, I, I really hate that expression because unless it's about things, matters of taste, you know, I like cheeseburgers and you like hot dogs, um, you know, nine times out of 10, things are either right or wrong, they're true or they're false. And I think the same thing has to happen in politics where literally, and I've done this with people I know where I've turned and said, what you are saying is not only wrong, but it's undemocratic, it's anti-constitutional, it's un-American. And you need to think about what you're saying. And, and I have had people say it to me and take issue with me about certain things. Um, but I think once we stop talking to each other honestly, like adults, all we're left with is childlike tantrums and shouting on one hand and silence and avoiding on the other. And I think we have to, I think the only people that can really guard our democracy is us. Right. And I mean, the other thing that, you know, kind of plays into this, and as you were just talking about the, you know, childlike tantrums, it, it brought to mind some of your arguments about the role of, of affluence. And, you know, much like children, we're all always used to getting what we want all the time, and we can have anything we want, you know, delivered to our doorstep within hours or days. And that is directly in opposition to some of the hard, boring, slow work of democracy. Can you say more about that role of affluence and, and how perhaps it's connected to narcissism and, you know, some of these bigger themes? Sure. You know, and that's part of the reason the book was a personal, had such a person, it's not a, a memoir, obviously, but that I included some background about my own life. Uh, because again, people bristle at the notion that we have had a long period of you know, 30 or 40 years of pretty much unbroken affluence. And of course, the answer is, but there are poor people and there are, uh, there are, there is income inequality and there are super rich people. And, you know, all of that is true, but by and large, uh, across all social classes, um, you know, we live better now than we lived 40 years ago. And that, that's always true. You could make that argument about any 40 year period, but this level of affluence combined with a period of peace, and it is a period of peace. Um, uh, even the wars overseas were fought by volunteers. And nothing was really asked of civilian society, which is one of the reasons I pointed out recently in an article in The Atlantic that, you know, we, we just forgot about Afghanistan. I and, mean, you know, those of us who work in national security affairs, we, we remembered it and we paid attention to it. And people in the military and their families paid attention to it. But you know, people here in the United States lived in a time of peace, prosperity, affluence, and a remarkably high level of, of standard of living. So, you know, this to, to me contributed to this narcissism. This, I think this contributes to this narcissism because it allows you to withdraw from the public space. There are not, we used to have to cooperate in times of scarcity or war or even the Cold War where, you know, there was some sense that we had to pull together. 
we now have every form of leisure and work even where we can just be alone and think about nothing but ourselves. Add to this the problem of social media to which I devote a whole chapter where we can just interact with the world through a screen and a keyboard. And I'm, look, I, every time I talk about this, I admit it, I'm part of the problem. I mean, I, you know, I have a half million Twitter followers and I spend a couple hours a day, you know, staring at other human beings as, you know, words on a screen. And that becomes very alienating after a while. You stop thinking of other people as people and you just think of them as objects in relation to yourself and whether or not interacting with them is making you feel good. So all of these things together have created a kind of collective alienation from democracy because we don't think it's very important because it doesn't seem to be the thing that's enabling us to live our lives, even though it, it really does every single day. So how do we, you know, both kind of address that without, while you know, without just dipping back into these, you know, narcissistic tendencies or, or these familiar patterns? And, you know, is there a way to sort of address you know, one problem without bringing about all the worst tendencies of, you know, everything else that that comes with it. Well, strangely, <clears throat> and I, I know some are, uh, scholars have made that case, and I'm not sure they've they've actually nailed down that case. I think how income inequality corrodes democracy is, is something that people assume because it seems very logical. And yet it's been very hard to operationalize how that happens. And there are two things to consider here. One is that the revolt against democracy, the real illiberal streak that you find in Italy, the United States, the UK, Poland, Turkey, Brazil, is not coming from the poorest people. It's not a movement of the poor. This is, this is where the model starts to break down. It's coming from a well-off middle class. If you look at the people who, you know, were storming the Capitol and, you know, talking about voting for strong men and even before Trump, you know, that democracy only works if I think it works for me. The Brexiteers who were, you know, the modern new nationalists in Britain, the five-star movement in Italy, this wasn't poor people. This, these weren't like, you know, the dispossessed of the earth rising up. That, that makes for a great story, but it didn't happen that way. And I think uh, what really potentially drives a lot of anger about democracy is not income inequality, which I, th I think has really bad effects on the economy. It snuffs out, it concentrates too much wealth, it snuffs out innovation, it snuffs out entrepreneurialism. You know, it's, I mean, even the ancient Athenians realized that they had to start building Parthenons to get money out of the hands you know, of the top folks to put it back into society, which is why they did that. I think awareness of inequality can make people nuts. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think most people can really comprehend the, the wealth of a Jeff Bezos. And what we found in both studies and anecdotally, when you look at, you know, talk to people about who they follow on Facebook and things like that, the most of the anger is not directed from the 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 working class or the lower middle class or the poor toward the super rich, it's directed from the middle class against the slightly better off middle class. And that to me is a real danger sign. When people are bored and surfing Zillow to compare house values and not just to look at the houses of the rich and famous, like we used to do back in the 80s, but to, to literally on their own street say, well, my house is worth $300,000, but you know, Joe's house is worth three hundred and twenty, dollars and now I'm upset. That, that's really unhealthy. And that, that has become you know, part of how a bored middle-class society entertains itself now.
Sure. And it's, of course, you know, reinforced in the media, both social media and, you know, TV and you know, pretty much any type of media, nostalgia always sells. And so it, you know, people, you know, often, again, don't have that sense of introspection to take a step back and think, oh, wait, what's really going on here? Because it's the easy thing to do to just sort of sit back and let it all wash over you. Yeah, I talk about this in the book. I talk a lot about nostalgia. And for people who like 70s and 80s uh, rock, there's a nice little detour in there where I talk about, you know, about decline rock, you know, Bruce Springsteen and his town dying every 10 years and, you know, the, the kinks lamenting the end of England, you know, 37 years ago and how this seems to happen in cycles. And, you know, the problem is that we are nostalgic for a time that didn't exist except in our memories. And there are two quick stories I'll tell. One of them I I mentioned in the book, which is, you know, one of my best friends I grew up with. We were sitting out front and talking about our neighborhood. And he said, I remember when these, that, that Benny pointed at me, I remember when that was full. And I said, you can't, you, you literally cannot remember that because you and I broke the windows there when it was empty in the early seventies. I said, it's not, it's, it's physically not possible for you to have that memory. And the other is that how often, especially young progressive analysts will say, well, let's take 1970 as a benchmark because of course, 1970, a single worker, you know, could support a family of four and afford an apartment in New York City. Right. That everybody says 1970, you could buy a small house in Queens. You could live in, you know, a working class neighborhood in Manhattan. You could live in, you know, Boston, in South Boston or the South End, on and on and on. And then but they leave they leave aside everything else about 1970, which is that you could afford it because the job market was pretty good for white, again, white union employed men because their wives couldn't work and didn't work because minorities were kept out of the workplace as competition. And even in 1970, I point out in the book, 1970 was the year of the hard hat riot in New York City, where construction workers frustrated because they felt that the working man was being disrespected and that no one listened to them, weighed into a crowd of Vietnam protesters and beat the living crap out of them. It was called Black Friday in New York. You know, especially when you sort of mix in this also like this FOMO or this envy, you know, you were talking about surfing Zillow. Uh, You also talk in the book about, you know, things like seven year car loans. And and that one really hit home for me. You know, my dad spent his career as a car salesman, as like the finance guy that would do all these crazy loans. And, you know, he used to come home and tell me all the time how, you know, people are idiots. That was his kind of default assumption. You know, they'll sort of fall for anything. And one of the conversations he and I had as, as I was growing up was like, what role, if any, should the government play in that? You know, is it, should there be something, you know, akin to the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau for the car industry to say that, no, it is not a good thing for our society to be able to let people make these, you know, types of loans or, you know, take out these types of loans. And that's a very long-winded way of asking, you know, what role do the institutions have in helping to save us from ourselves. Yeah. And I'm, you know, this is part of the problem that if you propose these kinds of, I and mean, let's just call them what they are, paternalistic 
solutions, the very same people making these decisions will say, you know, you can't step on my freedom. This is democracy. I have the right to make bad decisions. Well, you do have the right to make bad decisions, but you don't have the right to then lay it off on the rest of society when those decisions blow up in your face. You know, the, one of the examples that people brought up with me a lot when I was writing the book was the housing bubble. And just like your story about your dad and the seven-year car loans, which I mentioned in the book, you know, seven-year car loans, you have people that are in their early 20s that are already rolling in two or three other car loans from new cars that they've been buying, you know, in their teens and early 20s, which is, which is just crazy. But, you know, we want it. And seven-year loans have been a product since the 80s when people just wanted bigger and better cars. But with the housing bubble, I was I was on the market looking for a house in 1999. So this was well before the bubble. And we were driving around this neighborhood I live in in Rhode Island, which has a lot of beach area. And, you know, it's very nice. It's kind of a mixed income neighborhood, but it's it's got some really nice areas. And I saw these McMansions that were being built back 20 odd years ago with four by fours and kid toys out front. And I, the, I asked the realtor, I said, you know, I'm, f- I'm almost 40 years old and I can't afford this and I'm a professional. I said, how is this happening? And she nodded and she said, they ca- these younger folks cash out a ton of equity in their parents' homes, put down down payment, and then they live right to the edge of what they qualify for. But can you, you know, can you put institutions in place? People will rebel against that. Imagine going in and having, you know, the bank saying, well, the federal got, because of course, this is why we undid these. It used to be that you went to the bank and the bank said, the federal regulations tell me that I can't give you this loan because you simply don't qualify. You're not, you can't afford this. And people didn't like that. We wanted to have universal home ownership, which was a bipartisan, as I put point out in the book, um, Gretchen Morganson and her co-author said, this is a bipartisan train wreck, you know, that but everybody said, let's lower the eligibility. Let's give out money that people can't afford. And people gladly took those loans and then said, the government should have stopped me. Someone should have saved me from myself. And I, I don't, again, I don't think you can make a, I don't think you can make a democracy work on constantly telling the government to save you from yourself. Right. I mean, but I guess do you, and, and I know you, you sort of get at this a little bit when you talk about uh, Thomas Frank and some others who have sort of a, a more left-leaning critique of these sorts of things. Like, is there, like, where does corporate responsibility play in here? If not, if not the government, how do you kind of square the, you know, corporate desire to always make more money and more profits and, you know, more, more, more with this sort of inherent, you know, our vulnerabilities, our, our failings as people to fall for these things? Well, I, you know, I, I wish, I, I mean, I, I point out in the book that when I worked in the Senate, um, I advised my boss not to vote for most favored na- nation status for China. This was back in 1990. This is over 30 years ago because I just didn't think China was the kind of regime that had earned that relationship with the United States. And the answer was, Basically, cheap toy manufacturers were piling into Senate hearings saying, if you don't vote for this, poor kids are not going to have toys. We bought into that notion that we should have what we want, and what we want was a lot of cheap stuff. And I I don't know how you preach corporate responsibility while you don't also preach some kind of consumer responsibility. But I think what the corporations did 
was horrendous in the sense of just saying, we will make cheaper and worse and faster and just think quarterly. I mean, that's been the great disease of American business for years, that that they just think short term. On the other hand, you know, there are other other hands here. Um, people with their people with 401ks, all they care about is the price of their stock. And so, as I say in the book, you know, should corporations take less profit and manufacture things in the United States to employ American workers? Well, it depends on whether you want a job or whether you want to see your retirement portfolio increase. I think the other problem is, and I didn't go into this, but as some of my friends who work on this stuff sometimes object, you know, a lot of these companies just didn't want to deal with American workers and they didn't want to deal with American regulatory environments and they didn't want to deal with um, the costs of location here in the United States. I had these arguments with friends, you know, where I said, would you pay $300 more for a television? And the answer was no. Um, tell the company to take less profit. I said, but what if you work for the company? What if you, you know, what if you, uh, what if you own stock in the company? Well, you know, basically it always came down to the same answer. I want what I want and I don't want to hear about costs. So I, I agree with core. I, and I think actually one place we could start is, um, there's a lot of money to be saved in the government that basically amounts to corporate welfare. I don't think the U S government should be in the business of subsidizing, really anything unless we really need it. And, um, you know, that I, I think there's a lot of room for bipartisan agreement there, but you're still not going to stop the problem that people want cheap stuff. They've made a choice that consumerism is the new religion in America and corporations responded quite happily to that. Right. And encouraged it. I mean, not not to let them off the hook. And encouraged it and told us that it was a good thing to consume and own and buy and have a lot of toys. Right. And, you know, you talking about some of the you know policy reforms just there, I think, gets us to some of the solutions you offer. We could go on and on, I think, about some of these you know, bigger quandaries and I think, you know, keep, keep on with the moral hectoring, as it were. But let's uh, let's bring it around to some some solutions. You offer three modest proposals, as you call them. So let's run through those. The first is about the party should decide. I don't know if you're meaning to harken back to the famous political science book there, but that phrase will certainly be familiar to our listeners. Tell us more about that. The Party Decides is a really well-known book that now doesn't look I mean, I don't want to slag the authors because it's a landmark work and they they did a great job, but it, it got kind of overtaken by events around 2016. Their argument was party structures are too strong and basically subverting democracy by picking winners and losers. And I think that was, you know, as a looking backward explanation for a lot of what happens in American politics, there was there was a lot of merit to that. The problem is that 2016 really showed that the parties had, don't really have a lot of control over what's going on. And there's a lot of reasons for that, including super low turnout and the effect of primaries where you can use the where social media to mobilize a lot of people to show up and do things that the parties really don't want you to do. And two examples there are on the right and the left. One was Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's win in 2018. I mean, she beat the guy that was going to be the next speaker of the house and nobody really saw it coming. But on the other hand, you know, when you only have about a 12 or 13% turnout in a primary, 
that's the stuff that could happen. So that, that was definitely not the choice of the party. You had a Democratic primary where in 2016, where you had a really strong challenge to the party standard bearer, Hillary Clinton, from Bernie Sanders, who never bothered to join the Democratic Party. I mean, you literally had a major challenge from a guy who hadn't even bothered to register as a Democrat. Meanwhile, over on the right, you have Donald Trump, a, a lifelong Democrat who just decides, I mean, this great Great scene at the beginning of Bob Woodward's first book, where he's talking to Bannon and he's and Steve Bannon, and he basically says, "Okay, so I was pro pro choice. Fine, I'll be pro life. Well, I don't I donated to a lot of Democrats. Fine, I'll give some money to Republicans. You know, and these political entrepreneurs and hacks can ride right in, hijack the process. In again, in these at the beginning, what are these kind of low turnout, supercharged?" ideologically or emotionally supercharged primaries, and then the parties completely lose control. I mean, I, I would have been really happy to see both the Democrats and the Republicans. I think the Democrats should have turned to Bernie Sanders and said, you're more than welcome, but you know, you really do actually need to be a Democrat to run in our party. And I would have loved to have seen the Republicans turn to Donald Trump and say, you are not welcome here. You are not going to be on our debate stage. If you want to run third party, go ahead. But you were never a Republican. You are not a Republican in any identifiable way, ideologically or in terms of policy. And you are certainly not going to stand on a debate stage and just hurl insults at people's wives. But instead, the parties cowered and they said, well, the people want this. I think people don't understand that parties are not public utilities. They are private organizations. And they can decide what they stand for. And I think parties ought to do that again. How are you feeling about the prospects for any changes or any you know, momentum moving in that direction of the getting back to the, the party deciding? Yeah, I'm not very I'm not very optimistic about it. I mean, the, the Republican Party has completely collapsed as a party. I mean, it just just does not exist as a party anymore. When the Republican platform in 2020, when they had that complete carnival of nonsense that was, you know, multiple violations of the Hatch Act and federal law by having a, you know, a party convention on government property. Uh, and then said, you know, the platform is whatever Donald Trump says it is. Uh, you know, that's not a party. That's just a cult of personality. That's just a vehicle for an individual. The Democrats, unfortunately, lack of party discipline is something the Democrats take pride in. They love to come up. Every time I bring this up, Democrats love to throw that Will Rogers quote at me. I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And I keep saying to Democrats, stop saying that as if it's a good thing. Because, you know, in this environment, particularly, you really need to have a more organized party. And I, I talk in the book about David Shore, who's a data analyst who works on progressive causes. And Shore keeps pointing out, look, all parties are national now because of social media and the internet and cable news. So what someone says in a D plus 55 district where they can't lose and they can walk around yelling about defund the police and college should be free and, you know, uh, taking all of the, you know, uh, uh, America out of NATO or whatever their, you know, whatever the rage of the day is, that hurts someone who's in a, you know, D plus one or R plus one district. And that that's how parties lose elections. That's how the Republicans lost some elections 
back when you had uh, nincompoops out in in you know Missouri talking about legitimate rape and you know the women's bodies can shut down unwanted babies and all of that. And it cost the Republicans in other areas significantly. So you know the Republicans just don't exist as a party, and I don't I don't know what happens there. I I I, I left the Republicans years ago. And I, I don't, I don't know what just what happens to the remnants of that party. I think it will become a succession of cults of personality. There's a lot that still needs to be done, and I think you know part of the problem is people think that well, defeating Donald Trump, this was all about Donald Trump. I wrote the book because this is something that has been going on for 40 years, and Donald Trump was a symptom of it and something that made it worse. But I think if we just kind of sit back and say, well, okay, we fixed everything now. I don't think we're even close to being out of the woods. And I think people need to kind of take a deep breath and and think about how they're going to re-engage as citizens of a democracy. Indeed. Well, that is that is a great place to leave the things. Tom Nichols, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, Chris, I agree with you. I think that was really a terrific interview by Jenna and really brought the flavor of the book out. And, you know, one way I I kind of read this book is as a, a different kind of take on the rise of populism in the United States and elsewhere too. And, you know, so we've heard from people here and we've been, you know, we obviously have talked a great deal about uh, the role of economic anxiety or the role of status anxiety or the role of race and ethnocentrism in, in uh, populist sentiments. And, and he kind of wants to put it somewhere else, doesn't he? He kind of wants to put it on people themselves. And if I'm reading it correctly and hearing correctly, we're just not really being good enough. Not, I mean, it is, you know, we have said on this on this show many times that democracy makes mm-hmm. demands on us right and that is what he's arguing that sure. you know we you know there's one point where he says the only people that can really guard our democracy is us and so you know to say that it's corporations or it's it's government well that's all in some sense, I think he would argue us. And so the, as well. And so it's, you know, this is not an argument about politics per se. It's an argument about culture and about how, how much we value and how much we exhibit these kind of commitments in ourselves and in others. And I, you know, I mean, I, I'm inclined to agree with that. I think there is a, you know, for a variety of reasons, and it's not a matter of, you know, it's a matter of people responding to the environment in which they're in, which is just something that human beings do. You know, Sam, I was really struck by this part where he goes into, you know, basically blaming the 2008-2009 recession on people for wanting really big houses and cheap credit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, there's something to that. You shouldn't take out a loan. You can't repay. I, I, there's certainly something to that. But that's not why the economy crashed. And that's not why people buy houses, actually. The federal government has been incentivizing home purchasing for 50, 60, 70 years. 
They did it by building the interstate highway system. They did it by giving you a tax break on your mortgage, but not on your rent. I could go on and on in the ways that home ownership has been encouraged by the federal government. And then he's pissed at people because they want to own a big home. These were things that changed within the banking industry. They weren't things that changed in government. And even if you even if you say it's the government, his argument would be that it's because of the government only responds to incentives from voters. And if the voters are okay with that, then there's then that's what's going to happen. Here's the kind of thing I guess I'm trying to get at. And You know, nowhere in his book does he mention these enormous protests of uh, white people protesting blacks' treatment by the police. Yes, I agree. Nowhere does he talk about huge marches for women's reproductive rights. Nowhere does he talk anything about protest activity, about increased voter participation, even just about the fact that maybe maybe people are participating in politics and thinking politically in different ways than they did 50 or 60 years ago. And he's having a hard time with that. You know, one of the things that, uh, one one of the uh, findings, I've mentioned this before, but I'll bring it up again in the Mood of the Nation poll is that we found that younger people and older people think about democracy very differently. And that younger people tend to think about democracy in terms of mass political participation. And that older people didn't. They thought about it in terms of this more uh, attainable, I think, freedom than necessarily, you know, real mass participation in a political system designed for minority rule. So whenever I hear accounts that want us to go back to a better time, I don't know, I get really uncomfortable with it because you can't isolate that better time from the fact that politics and much of American life was deeply restricted to white men. But, you know, it reminds me in Biden's inaugural address, he said something along the lines of there's always been enough of us to carry the, our, our project forward. And so that doesn't mean that the and I think Nichols would agree with that. So it doesn't mean that we are always uh, that we were in a former state. Uh, we had plenty of, uh, uh, we were all virtuous. It doesn't mean that. It means there were enough people who had enough concern for the condition of the society to move it forward. And, who and were those through people? every crisis that happened, right? And yes. so now he's arguing that we don't, and that there are there are too many people who are behaving in ways that are undemocratic, insofar as they are not sufficiently concerned with the condition of our democracy and their own condition as citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's 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 like it's not that we are in this totally different world. It's just that things have progressed in a way that is in that degree alone is not good for democracy. And so if we are going to improve our the way our democracy functions and that includes the pressure we put on corporations and the pressure we put on government if that's going to change we need to think about more than just what am I getting out of this? How am I being um, misserved by the status quo? Maybe we should leave it there with a good clear statement of his position. You know, I mean I think obviously 
this, the, the degree of debate and argument and investment in this argument is reflective of just how, you know, it's really good. It's really a good read. It's not the most uplifting book. It's actually kind of depressing in parts. But and in and I guess I kind of agree with Michael that the that the ending is uh, the the prescriptions he has at the end are a little thin, and he admits it is really. But in any case, it's it is a an interesting account of where we are as a democracy, and it's 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 worth your attention. Mm-hmm. So for Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our producer, and our editors are Jen Bortz, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Democracy Works is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Learn more at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.